Our text is 1 John 5.21. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. We come to the last in a series on the Christian and politics with the same text that we had in the first sermon in the series. But what I want to do today is to pick up where we left off last week, at the end last week, at the conclusion. We looked at the passage in Matthew 22, where Jesus is confronted by his enemies who are trying to trap him in a political matter. Matthew 22, verse 15. Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, we know you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by men because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, you hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? What is the trap? The question might be, what is the trap? Well, the Jews were under Roman rule, and they hated being occupied by the Romans and being told to do by the, you know, what they should do by the Romans. So if Jesus says you should pay taxes, then he could be accused of siding with the occupying Romans. But if Jesus said you shouldn't pay taxes, they could tell the Romans that he was against Roman rule. How does Jesus answer? Show me the coin used for paying tax, the tax. They brought him a denarius. And he asked them, whose portrait is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. When they heard this, they were amazed. So they left him and went away. As I said last week, living when and where we do, this story may seem to point to the separation of church and state. So many people make a big deal of Caesar being the state and God representing the church. And as I said last week, I think this completely misses the point that Jesus is trying to make. He refers to the coin, which has an image on it, that has an inscription on it. Both were Caesar's. So give that to Caesar. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. But then he turns around and tells them, give to God what is God's. The coin has Caesar's image and Caesar's inscription. What has God's image and God's inscription? We do. We are made in the image of the creator, and we've been given a double mandate, an inscription, if you wish, dominion over his creation, downward, and trust in his goodness, upward. But there are those things which seek to replace the creator, to tell a different story than he has in the revelation of himself. Like other aspects of God's creation, they have some good in them. They're not totally bad but they become inflated by some, overinflated, and they stand between us and God. This happens to ideologies and politics as well as political systems. And this raises an important question, the question to which this whole series has been headed. What is a non-idolatrous approach to society and politics look like? If we're going to deal with politics as Christians, how can we do it in a non-idolatrous, a non-ideological way? In seeking to get to the answer, there are certain realities that must be acknowledged. First of all, as we've seen throughout this series, the place to begin is the beginning. The narrative that we have that God gives us in Scripture begins with creation. 
and then is followed by fall, redemption, and consummation. Having created mankind in his image, God gives humans a twofold mandate, as I just mentioned, dominion over creation, that's downward, but trust in God, that is looking upward. Humanity's dominion or stewardship over creation involves culture shaping, culture shaping activities. See, if you say agriculture, people get that, yeah, you're supposed to till the earth and that's a way of having dominion. But in fact, that's only one aspect of culture shaping that we as God's people are told to do. Those made in his image, we are told to have dominion. Adam and Eve rebelled, however, and they were cast from God's presence. But the mandate, the inscription remains. Broken as we are, broken as creation is, we are still to have dominion and we are still to trust God. We are to go out into the world, all humanity is, to discover the possibilities that God has built into his creation. It's there waiting for us to find it and for us to create cultures and to shape culture as well. As I said, it's not just agriculture. There's the arts, the visual arts, music, literature, natural sciences, social institutions, political institutions. This means that politics is a part of creation. It is part of the inscription that God has put on us. God's creation is not static. Okay, It is filled with constantly developing um, culture, if you wish, under human stewardship. Now, if I were to say technology, you'd say, yes, that's true. It's always improving. Or medicine. But I would argue that this is true of all culture, including politics. As one writer put it, politics is not some unfortunate product of the fall or merely a necessary evil. It serves God's positive purpose and God's original design for the universe. So there is, in fact, this ongoing development that should be happening in politics. Second thing that we need to know, to keep in mind, is that God had a purpose. He had a telos for creation. The modern age has rejected that because it hasn't looked at creation um, with God in mind. It's looked at creation apart from God. And instead of thinking of purpose... It thinks in terms of cause and effect. The pre-modern world, before the modern world, saw divine purpose. It was manifested everywhere in the world of nature, the world of creation, that there was, in fact, divine purpose. The modern world changed the framework. So it's no longer about purpose. Now it is seen in terms of the laws of cause and effect. That if you can discover the cause of something, then you can explain it. And there's no need to say, well, what is its purpose? What is the divine purpose? Why did God do this or that? You can simply say, oh, this is the cause and this is the effect. And so there's a complete shift away from the idea of purpose, divine purpose, to that of cause and effect. To the modern mind, purpose has no place as a category of explanation in any exercise that claims to be scientific. If you're going to talk in terms of science, you cannot talk in terms of purpose, only cause and effect. And yet, as human beings, 
Purpose is an inescapable part of our lives. It's part of our thinking. We do entertain the idea of purpose, of purposes, and we set out, in fact, to achieve them. We want to find purpose in life. And here there's a great paradox. As one writer put it, with dedicated zeal, he, that is human beings, purposes to explain the world as something that is without purpose. Modern man says there is no purpose, only cause and effect, and yet sets out with purpose to discover. This paradox, this rejection of purpose, has led to a series of dichotomies. So public and private, fact, value, reason, and faith. The third thing we need to keep in mind as we seek to answer the question is, as this is the case, cause and effect instead of purpose, these dichotomies mark the mind of modern thinking. The modern world is marked by the division of human life into public and private between fact and value. The public world is the world of facts that we all share. It's the same for everyone. Two plus two is four. It doesn't matter who you are, where you are, what religion, you know, what philosophy, what political affiliate, it's the same. So this is public. These are facts. On the other hand, the private world is a world of values. Here you get to choose what it is you want to think, what you want to believe. Thus we find in the modern world a gulf, a gulf has developed between what is, that's a statement of fact, and what ought to be, that is a judgment of value. This means in part that if you're going to make a moral judgment on anything, you have to create the basis for that moral judgment because you've rejected purpose and it's all cause and effect. So you have to decide in fact what is morally correct or wrong. This is difficult, I would argue it is in fact impossible. If people would be honest and if they would be consistent, um, you cannot go from what is to what ought to be. It's just impossible. Um, and yet people do that all the time. This also extends to the dichotomy between reason and faith. Reason is based on facts, it's objective. Faith is based on faith. It's subjective, it's based on values, and so you can believe what you want by faith, but over here we have reason. This is far beyond the scope of this series, but in reality, reason, in fact, rests on judgments as well, on values, even though many would deny this. There is, in fact, a metaphysical aspect to reason, but again, that's beyond our scope here. In addition, if purpose is not a feature of the world of facts, and if human beings are entertained or they need purposes, then they, in fact, have to create their own purpose. They have to choose a purpose. This is the meaning, this is the goal of my life. The fourth thing that we need to keep in mind is that there is a conflict between the biblical narrative and that of modern ideologies, and this is inevitable. Among the dichotomies found in the modern world is secular versus religious. And again, this is a false division because those who claim to be secular, in fact, require a commitment, some type of faith commitment uh, to make the statements that they do. <clears throat> a book that I usually have my students read, or a portion of it, um, is Benedict Anderson's famous book, Imagined Communities, 
Reflections on the Origin and Spread of Nationalism. And he argues that the nation is imagined as a community. It requires a leap of faith. And you look at, let's say, uh, Indonesia or the Philippines, which are two huge archipelagos. If one person's at one end of the archipelago and the person's at the other end, why would they say, oh, I am of this nation? Well, it requires a leap of faith. And so they have to, in fact, use their imaginations. Um, anyway, two points need to be made here. I've, I've made, I've focused on ideologies, but in other times, other terms were used. G.K. Chesterton, this is in 1910, so 110 years ago, said that what we see is a fight of creeds masquerading as policies. Well, today we would say it's a it's a fight of narratives that are masquerading as ideologies. Idolatrous systems tell a different story than what we find in Scripture. The story of redemption, Scripture tells us, is through Jesus Christ. But ideologies have another way of salvation. But we should not, as God's people, imagine that the only conflict is between secular ideologies, idolatries, and God's people, the church. In reality, there's conflict between the ideologies. One writer calls it uh, sibling rivalries. Um, we are not the only targets of ideologies. Okay. If ideologies are idolatry by, nation, by nature, and the question is one of variation, and it doesn't lessen, by the way, the enmity between these. So you consider, for example, Nazi Germany and communist Russia and the millions of people who died as a result of that conflict. As one writer put it, this is a case in the 20th century. You have these ideologies fighting, and what happens, he says, and all that happened was that we stacked up the corpses, millions of them. In some situations, not being an ideologue by nature, I find it really intriguing that in some situations, more persons of a particular ideology are murdered by people within the same ideology because they have gone a little off course. So you have Stalin killing Trotsky, for example. But more than that, you just have so many people who are killed by their fellow travelers because they have varied in some aspect of the ideology. But the nature, the nature of the conflict between ideologies and the church is quite different. It is not a conflict of ideologies. It is, in fact, a conflict between idolatry and the truth. You have people who are adherents to an ideology, which is idolatrous, who in fact stand opposed to the truth as God has revealed it in Scripture. This leads to a second point I want to make here. The conflict between the biblical narrative and that of modern ideologies is essentially a religious conflict, as ideologies are idolatrous by nature. They not only seek to replace God, but they tell a different story. It is rooted in the issue of redemption. The biblical story begins with creation, the beginning. It doesn't end with the fall. Adam and Eve do sin, but then there is redemption. And one day there will be consummation in the with the return of Jesus. Ideologies promise salvation. They promise redemption. They will deliver you from evil, this evil that 
something specific they have pointed to. This is the reason we are in the mess that we're in and we need, in fact, to fix this and we will save you from that. So ideologies have this redemptive story that they try to sell to other people, that they try to convert them, they try to evangelize them, come and join us and we will, in fact, set you free. Inevitably, there'll be conflict because different ideologies tell different stories. Sometimes this results in overt persecution, other times in covert marginalization, as I mentioned last week. Privatization will just ignore you. But let's, let's be clear, let there be no doubt, there will be conflict between the ideologies of this world, which are idolatrous, and the people of God. A professor of law at Harvard crowed about the perceived victory. They lost, we won. Taking a hard line, you lost, live with it, is better than trying to accommodate the losers. Trying to be nice to the losers didn't work well after the Civil War, and taking a hard line seemed to work reasonably well in Germany and Japan after 1945. Someone commenting on what this professor said the neo-pagans are in no mood to be accommodating. Christians and others who dissent from progressive orthodoxy and expect the hardline approach, or should expect the hardline approach, they are to be treated like the defeated Germans and Japanese after World War II. We shouldn't be surprised by this. Paul told Timothy centuries ago, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted but far more dangerous than persecution is, in fact, marginalization, just being pushed to the side. You can keep your faith, just keep it private. An aside here, if you wish. At this point, or perhaps even earlier in the series, it may be that some are disinterested, uh, having been scared off by the failures of past attempts of Christians to engage politics. Take, for example, the Moral Majority. It was founded in 1979. It was a reaction in part to Roe v. Wade of 1973, which legalized abortion. But there are a number of problems that the Moral Majority had, and I think ultimately why they failed. First of all, it failed to begin at creation, okay, and the real Garden of Eden. Instead, it imagined that the United States in the beginning was a Christian nation. It was perfect everyone was a Christian, it was wonderful, and then the serpent came in and screwed everything up, and Roe v. Wade is the fall, if you wish. It did what ideologies do, it began with fall, and not creation. And the fall for them was, uh, there were a number of things, but Roe v. Wade was the big one in 1973. In fact, by 1973, 20 states in the United States had already legalized abortion, okay? So 1973 can't be the fall. In any case, we are to begin at the beginning, and not the beginning of the nation, but the beginning of the cosmos. I think the third reason why it didn't do well, why it failed, is the moral majority, instead of taking a biblical approach, took an ideological approach. They viewed the answer to America's problems, or woes as they saw it, as requiring a political solution. 
he took an ideological approach. And the ideology of choice for them was nationalism. It is what one historian has argued was the ideology of the 20th century. In the various conflicts, the world wars, if you wish, and more, the genocides, are conflicts between nations and nationalisms. The nationalist redemptive narrative differs from one nation to another. One country says, this is, this is what our country is, this is where we began, and we have the story of salvation. But it's a different culture than the one across the street or across the ocean. And so you have different stories. And each nation claims the ultimate allegiance of its members. If one embraces this ideology, it is disturbing to hear that someone has a prior commitment. I've mentioned this several times over the years, that after 9-11, some people in this country were very disturbed that certain people were uh, interviewed, Muslims, who said that they were Muslims first and Americans second. It's like, that's not right. It's got to be Americans first. Well, that's nationalism as an ideology. We, in fact, are supposed to be God's people first. Nationalism, by the way, is a bloody religion. Its victims in the 20th century number in the hundreds of millions. And it is completely contrary to the Christian faith as revealed in scripture. Do you remember what Paul wrote to the Galatians? There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you, all, you are all one in Christ Jesus. It's not Americans, only Americans. As God's people, we have brothers and sisters around this planet. We belong to the people of God. So, in my opinion, the moral majority was a mistake for the reasons I've just given. But what is tragic is so many Christians have now turned away from being involved in the political process because of the failure of the moral majority. Or, in fact, they have clamped on, they've jumped onto another ideology because of the failure of the moral majority. They have failed to acknowledge that we can learn from our mistakes and from our failures. I mean, think about it. Don't you learn in everyday life from your mistakes? I mean, someone has made the point that we actually learn more from our failures than we do from our successes. So when we look at the moral majority, there's part of us that wants to wipe, wash our hands. We don't want anything to do with that. In fact, if I may tell you, the name of this church was changed in part because of the moral majority. They were you know, Baptists and we were... Berean Baptists are like, oh, we don't want that. And we became the church on Melrose. But we can learn from failures. We can learn from the mistakes, our own mistakes as well as the mistakes of others. Let's not repeat their mistakes, but let's not go hide in a cave because of the mistakes that they made. The fifth thing that prepares us to answer the question of how we are supposed to live and act as God's people in a political situation, is we live in a world and a society that is marked by pluralism. This is a fact, okay? We are surrounded by many different things, many different faiths, many different cultures, and many different political systems. We must accept it as a fact, but we cannot embrace it as a creed to say, yeah, we'll go with that. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, 
or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. In the Ten Commandments, we read, you are to have no other gods before me. So how do we live in a pluralistic world? I think it's helpful for us to understand that there's more than one type of pluralism. There is a religious pluralism, there's cultural pluralism, and there is structural or political pluralism. It is religious pluralism, which uh, Leslie Newbigin said, we cannot embrace it as a creed. We cannot hold that it doesn't matter what you believe. Of course it matters what you believe. There is the truth, and then all other systems are lies. Okay? But we can coexist in society. Now, there's a real danger here, it's ironic, that because you can have so many different religious faiths in one society, this almost becomes a new narrative, a redemptive narrative. Look how progressive we are. Look how much we have evolved. You have all these different religious faiths, and it really doesn't matter. We can all live together. Well, it does matter, and by God's grace, we do live together. But there, again, there is a truth, and if it's not the truth, then it is lies. Some, on some level, I think this has in mind that everyone has to sort of tone down the orthodoxy. Don't be so strict about what you believe so we can all get along. Well, no, if I hold to the truth, then I cannot compromise on the truth. Then there's cultural pluralism. And I think I hardly need to say anything about this, living in Los Angeles. It's, I think it's something that everyone accepts for the most part. I mean, if nothing else, think food. Okay, just think of all the different types of food that are available here based on various cultures. Okay. So all these cultures can, in fact, coexist within one society. Now, there are certain aspects of culture that are unacceptable, okay, such as honor killings. And we say, well, no, I'm sorry, if you're in this society, that may be your culture, but that is not acceptable within our society. But other aspects, in fact, can be accepted. But it's the last one that is sort of the focus of what we're looking at in this series. What about structural or political pluralism? I think diversity might, in fact, be a better word rather than pluralism. It seems strange that we are so open to cultural diversity, much less so to political diversity. In the same way that ideologies fight against each other, it is, in fact, a denial of the diversity we find politically. As we have seen, if you begin at the beginning, we are given this mandate to have dominion. We are to be culture shapers. We are to be forming cultures. And if you live in different places, with different geographies, with different climate, uh, different vegetation that grows, different animals that live there. Of necessity, the cultures that develop there will be quite different. And I would argue, so will the political structures. We should not sort of take a, co a cookie-cutter approach and say, okay, this works here, so it's going to work over there. When, in fact, the geography is different. Perhaps they live by an ocean, whereas you have a landlocked society. They're there are going to be differences, and yet somehow we want to impose one system on all. 
All of these take place in a variety of communal settings. We should not expect them to all be the same. I've mentioned before, but before Guy and I got married, we met with various people here in the church for their wisdom, their counsel. We met with Dan and Lonnie to get their advice, their counsel. And Dan said to us, every marriage is different. So marriage is, in fact, a universal human, human uh, thing that happens. All cultures have marriage. And yet, each marriage is different. In the same way, we have various cultures. We also should have various political systems. It is interesting that when it comes to politics, ideologies want a uniform system on all. That all nations of all times and all places are to follow this particular ideology. Ask yourself, why is it that ideologies, in fact, insist on having a uniform system? Because they are idolatries. They want to be worshipped. They want to be the God of all people. Refusing to recognize God's sovereignty, the followers of ideologies are faced, are forced to locate sovereignty within his world or his creation. And therefore, they deny the fact that there is differentiation, that there is structural pluralism. Um, religious pluralism, yes. Cultural pluralism, yes. Cultural diversity, yes. Political diversity, no. This is the system that everyone must follow. In nationalism, there is the desire to go back to the good old days, the way things used to be. This is not the path to take. I said there would only be four sermons in the series, and I will stick to that. There is so much more to say, but I, I do want to bring this sermon and series to a close. And to do so by presenting what I believe is a biblical response. How do we walk toward a non-ideological path? So I asked earlier in the series, what does a non-idolatrous approach to society and politics look like? Imagine that there's a new country. This is not possible, but imagine that there's a new country and you are assigned to help it develop a political system. Where do you begin? And by the way, we don't, we don't have to imagine that here we are now in a country. Where do you begin? Okay. Well, the first, and must always be the first thing, is to properly and unquestionably acknowledge that God is sovereign over all of life. And his plan for redeeming his creation is through Jesus Christ. The psalmist tells us in Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. So we must begin by acknowledging that God is the creator, that he created the world, that God is good, and that he viewed his creation as good. We must always start at the beginning. God is in control. The second thing is, we must acknowledge that creation has fallen, but that some things remain. We still bear the image of the creator. As twisted as it may be, we still are image bearers of the creator. Secondly, we have the inscription. We have the mandate of dominion, downward, trust, upward. Okay? And we have the capacity 
and the calling to form culture in its various forms, and this includes politics. And where we live affects the way we form culture. So there is the possibility of great diversity. If, in fact, each one of you were given an assignment, you're going to set up a political system, you'd have to wonder, you have to ask, where is it that I'm going to do this? What is the geography? What is the climate like? Um, you can't have one size fits all. The third thing you have to keep in mind is that one aspect of creation can, in fact, become idolatrous. And this is what we find in ideologies. Not just because they are inflated beyond reason to stand in the place of God, but because they tell a different story. They tell a counter-narrative. They present a different redemptive story. Rather than throwing out all ideologies and say, okay, I'm starting a new country out with all ideologies, we need to understand what their appeal is. What is it about the story that they tell, including the fact that some of the things they say are correct. I mentioned this at the beginning, I think earlier in the series, that liberals have properly understood that there is a legitimate sphere of individual responsibility in which other individuals and communities ought not to interfere, that the individual has a right to certain things. And in fact, it is the liberal aspect of the political spectrum that in fact spoke of human rights before anyone else did. Conservatives have rightly called our attention to the significance of tradition, that we need to maintain historical continuity, that we can't just sort of herky-jerky make these changes left and right. Nationalists of, of all the ideologies are sort of the first to really focus on communal uh, solidarity, if you wish, that you have people who have common citizenship, they have common cause, that's important. Socialists have alerted us to the role played in economic class um, in the way it influences the way that we think and act politically. So you just don't throw everything out. What we need to do is beware of the idolatrous aspects of ideologies. Fourthly, we need to acknowledge that Jesus came into the world to redeem all of creation, including politics. He came in human flesh. He lived among us, the human race. He revealed the Father to us. He sent the Spirit to us. He gave his life to redeem creation. And it was all of grace. But one aspect I think that Christians oftentimes fail to appreciate or acknowledge is what theologians call common grace. What is common grace? Well, it is contrasted with saving grace. When God saves us by his grace, that is called saving grace. Common grace means that God in his mercy preserves his creation against the full consequences of sin, even amid human unbelief. Do you remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount? He, that is the Father, causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sins reign on the righteous and the unrighteous. God's mercies are extended to both believers and unbelievers alike. Which means, and we should already know this intuitively, that unbelievers can be wonderful shapers and formers of culture. It's not just Christians who can produce works of art or music or anything or political systems. Unbelievers can as well, and this is by the grace of God, this is what we call common grace.
So while we in fact may look at someone as the opposition, and we may look at ideologies as idolatrous, there are certain aspects of them. And this is what makes it tricky because otherwise it'd be, able, you know, it'd be easy just to say, off with it, I don't believe any of it, throw it out, it's all evil. Um, anyone who holds to that, I don't want anything to do with. In fact, they may have the grace of God working in their lives and within their system. So here at the end, let's, let's be clear about something. We must begin and end and keep it always in our minds that God is in control. He is sovereign. This is his world and he reigns. So we're coming up on an election, a significant one, I would say. And there might be the temptation to think or to say that if one side wins, it would be the end of all things. It's the apocalypse. If my side doesn't win, it's the end of the republic. Things will never be the same. Maybe. I don't know. Okay? I don't know. But I do know that God is in control. This is his world. Which doesn't mean, by the way, you know, people always say God is in control, as though that means things are going to work out the way you want. Eh, not necessarily. Okay? Doesn't mean that everything will work out fine. But God does have a purpose. In closing, it occurred to me as I was preparing this last sermon in the series that all this talk of ideologies might seem misplaced because it doesn't seem that ideologies are as prominent today in the political scene as identity politics or personalities, that people won't vote for someone because they don't like him or her. Just not a nice person. Um, But I decided I'll stick with the ideologies um, because if nothing else, they show us idolatry that in fact, what we will call policies or what we will call ideologies are in fact idols. They are idolatry. And we as God's people need to know that. We need to know that they are trying, well, they're trying, they are telling a different story than what scripture tells us. They promise salvation in something other than Jesus Christ. They promise to fix all problems. And if we're not careful, if we are not careful, and I think this is what the moral majority did, they begin to, we will begin to tell a counter story that isn't biblical. We will challenge their story, but not on biblical grounds. God has revealed his story in creation, fall, redemption, consummation. That's where we begin. That's where the conversation begins, and it should guide our thinking during this political system, uh, political season, which seems to have been going on for years now. Speaking to someone the other day, said, you know, I really don't know how this election is going to turn out. I could see it going either way. And the person replied, God knows. And that's true. But also, God has a purpose. See, if we're not careful, we get into this cause and effect thing. If this person's elected, then this will be the effect. Instead of knowing God has a purpose from the beginning 
there's been a purpose in creation and one day there will be the new heaven and the new earth. That's where it's all going. And as God's people, we cannot forget that. Let's pray together. Father, this is a difficult, in some ways confusing time as we approach the election, some people have already voted. There is hostility, anger, bitterness. Seems like a total lack of civility. By your grace, I've tried in this series to show how we, your people, are to view politics. We are to acknowledge that this is your world and you have a purpose for it. We may have different opinions, different affiliations, but may they not become idols to us that we think, oh, if this person is elected, all will be well. Salvation is found in Jesus Christ alone, who came and gave his life that all creation might be redeemed. As your people help us to recognize that it isn't simply believers who have been given grace in terms of shaping culture. That you in fact have given grace because of the sacrifice of Jesus to those who are not believers, but you've given them gifts, skills, abilities. We come to this election time with a certain amount of trepidation. May we not fear. May we know that you have a purpose in all things. Help us to trust you. I thank you for this Sunday, the beginning of a new week. I ask that you would keep us through the coming days. May we have a sense of your presence. May we know that you love us. I ask that your grace and your spirit would go with us. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.